if you're listening and you have the imposter syndrome, which is you're doubting that, you know, you're worthy or you can do this or whatever. My first piece of advice for you is that basically everybody has the imposter syndrome. It's just some people are delusional and have forgotten about it. Everybody, I mean, Barack Obama probably, you know, has imposter syndrome sometimes. So everybody, LeBron James probably has imposter syndrome sometimes. It's just, can you push past it? Hey there, and welcome back to Simbi Foundation's podcast, Impact in the 21st Century, the show that shares stories of positive impact in a world that right now can leave us all feeling a little helpless. Each episode, I speak with incredibly inspiring guests about the positive impact they're making, learning how they discovered their passion, and uncover what they've done to turn vision into action. I also aim to tease out what we can all do to lead more impactful lives, so be sure to stick around. I'm Aaron Friedland, your host of Impact in the 21st Century and founder of Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with the UN to build digital, solar-powered classrooms called Brightboxes to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. If you're returning for another episode, thank you for being part of this community and for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. You inspire us to keep sharing these impactful stories. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the awesome guest list we have lined up for you. And a huge thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. And today I'm so lucky to be joined by Guy Kawasaki, who has written incredible books and who has personally shaped my own journey uh, with entrepreneurship with his 10, 20, 30 principles and so much more. And Guy, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. All right. So before we jump right in, I just want to provide some context for the conversation. You're the author of 15 books and counting. Um, you've worked at Apple twice, served at the, as the chief evangelist under jobs. You've popularized the term evangelist. You've worked with Google. Well, there was Jesus before me, but okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> 2000 year gap. <laughs> Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big, actually. <laughs> no, compared to a millennia. <laughs> um, so you're you're also the chief evangelist at Canva. Um, you're the creator of the Remarkable People podcast, which I want to chat with you about. Father of two, you've worked with Unitas on some incredible... Um, four. Four. Father of four. Well... Depends if you mean in the biological sense, but we adopted two. <laughs> so we have four children. Father of, again, it depends how you define father as a philosophical caretaker and provider or contributor of DNA. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if we have more time, I'll, I'll dig deeper into that. Uh, nah, that's okay. <laughs> and, um, for me, most importantly, you've popularized this concept of making meaning and not just money, which I really appreciate. So am I missing anything here? Uh, no, I, you know, that more than summarizes my life. I haven't built a car company or a tunnel company or a rocket company or anything like that. So, Yeah, I, I was hoping to wait until you had for a more interesting interview, but I figured I'd, I'd take it. I think, yeah. <laughs> well, we can postpone this. Yeah, you know what? Okay, it's it's been appreciate your time. <laughs> nice meeting. You. Take care, bye. <laughs> so, you know, over the years, I've I've listened to you speak a great deal about this notion of a mantra. 
for a company, yes. for an NGO, for yourself. Yes. And I'd love to hear how you arrived at this concept and how your personal yeah. mantra guides the things that you do and how you create positive impact with it. Well, some of it is that I was subjected to the very heinous process of creating mission statements. Primarily, I experienced this heinousness when I was on the board of some not-for-profits. And not-for-profits, they just seem to want to revisit their mission every month. And I just could not wrap my mind around the waste of time that is. And when a not-for-profit does it in particular, they really want to include all the stakeholders and shareholders. And oh my God, I mean, it would be, it would take up one day and you know, it would have to take care of the customers and the, the shareholders and the, the employees and the dolphins and the whales. And, you know, I mean, it was endless. And inevitably what would happen would be a mission statement that was totally unremarkable. And you, you could not, if someone did not say, okay, you know, this is the company and this is the mission statement, there is no way you could have read the mission statement and even had a wild guess about who the company was that it pertained to. I mean, you know, there'd be mission statements about fostering the the reasonable or fostering optimal shareholder uh, gain while enabling our employees to self-actualize their life goals while providing our customers with a satisfying experience that exceeded their expectations. And this would be for a tobacco company. I mean, <laughs> it's just, so I finally... I, I learned this concept of a mantra and the world's shortest mantra is two letters. It's like, um, so I, I just love this concept. So my personal mantra for myself is empower people. And I think that the mantra for Canva is to democratize design. So, you know, now I, I can't tell you that I believe that when I tell you democratize design, a hundred percent of the people say, Oh, that must be Canva. But at least, you know, if I told you that democratized design is Canva's mantra, you would not be scratching your head saying, what the hell is he talking about? How is it? I mean, two and two equals four, right? Mm -hmm. When you hear that, what a concept. And so that's how I came upon this concept that, you know, mission statements suck. They take too long. They're too expensive. They try to, they're not memorable. No one can know what the hell they're referring to. So a mantra is a much better thing. And, and so after you've created your mantra, or let's say you're a, a nonprofit or a for-profit mm -hmm. that have now gone through the process of looking at their mission statement, realizing it's too long or it's non-memorable. Throw it away, yeah. They've now created a mantra. How do you, how do you suggest people use them? At, at the very basic level, and, and this would be better than 90% of the organizations, it would be nice if every employee knew the mantra because I guarantee you, not every employee knows the mission statement. So, you know, imagine if you're Canva and you have a thousand employees and everybody knows, oh, so, you know, your parents ask you, so, you know, honey, what do you do? What does your company do? And you say, mom, we democratize design. Well, duh, as opposed to what? Well, we, we, we create patent pending, curve jumping, paradigm shifting, 
technology that exceeds the expectations of our customers while enabling employees to self-actualize their life goals or providing a meaningful return to shareholders. Yeah, mom, you got that, mom? You understand what we do now, mom? <laughs> so, so say someone listening to this wants to go through the process of, of implementing your mantra. Can, can we do a quick... Yeah. Okay, I, first of all, I'll tell you what not to do, yeah. right? Do not do an executive offsite. Do not book a you know a room at the Ritz Carlton. Do not invite McKinsey. Do not invite a meeting facilitator or an executive coach. I think mostly it has to come from the brain of the CEO, and the CEO should say, oh, "It's like truly, what do we stand for?" And after some cogitation, some walks on the seashore, you know, whatever it is, taking a long shower, taking a drive in a German car with a stick shift, whatever it takes, I think mostly the CEO should come up with it and then bounce it off a few people. But it is not a group effort because, you know, let's say, let's say, let's take this hypothetical case. You're coming up with a mantra for Canva, right? Mm -hmm. And so the CEO says, well, I got it. Two words, democratize design. And then you start expanding the circle and then the finance person says, well, we democratize design, but what about our investors? Okay, we democratize design and provide a meaningful return for our shareholders. And then the VP of HR says, well, wh what about employees? We're, you know, they're an important constituents. Okay, so now we democratize design while providing a meaningful return for our shareholders and enabling employees to self-actualize their goals. And then pretty soon you have a... 30-word mission statement. Understood. Okay. And, and and so let's say, for example, we're talking about Simbi Foundation, which builds solar power classrooms to uh, enable the next 3.5 million learners to access education in okay. remote and refugee communities. Okay. How would how would you turn that notion into a mantra? Well, at some level, well, I don't know if, you know, I would, my easy reaction is democratize education, but it, I don't think it's the democracy part that is holding back your customer, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's more like much more basic is, is it just the, you need energy? Yeah. It's <laughs> lack of need, access it, to energy and, and tools of the 21st century for learning. Yeah. Yeah. And so it may be, well, maybe a more accurate would be um, democratizing educational technology mm. right because that is saying that's not just democratizing education your emphasis on technology which infers you know everybody should have internet access computers you know whatever tablets i don't know whatever i'm making this up yeah, yeah. you know I uh, but i think if if somebody said to me so my my not-for-profit uh, mantra is to democratize educational technology. I said, okay, I get that. So you want everybody to have a laptop, everybody to have internet access, everybody to have access to books. I get that. You know, I understand that. So I don't know if that's true for you, Aaron, mm -hmm. but you know, that's the kind of thinking. And then in three words, you could explain that to anybody. Right. All right. Honestly, I've got everything I need from this conversation. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you you didn't need 30 minutes. All your wisdom. No, no. Hey. no I really appreciate that. that. That's amazing. And I know it's going to help us, but I know that it's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. There you go. 
So you, you hear about a lot of leaders working what many would consider these odd jobs. You know, you've got Jeff Bezos at McDonald's, uh, Buffett selling newspapers, Reed Hastings of Netflix selling vacuum cleaners. And, and each of these sucks. <laughs> leaders attribute many aspects of their success to, to these jobs and, and their learnings. Yes. And I'm wondering, I understand you worked in, in jewelry with, uh, with Nova Stylings, and I'm wondering if you yes. had any learnings from that experience that oh my God, are yes. comparable. Um, so I worked in the jewelry manufacturing business, and we sold to retailers. The jewelry business is a very tough business. Um, when you're buying jewelry, you basically want to throw the jewelry on a scale and say, okay, so there's, you know, eight grams of 18 karat gold spot price of gold is X. So that means you have, you know, X dollars worth of gold. You have five, five point diamonds. It's 20, you know, 0.25 carat diamonds are now at that grade. It's X dollars per carat. So the take those two numbers and add it up. And, you know, you come to $75 and you say, okay, so I'm a reasonable person. I'm going to let you make some profit. I'll let you make 25%. So 75 becomes, you know, I don't know, a hundred bucks or whatever, right? So I'll pay you a hundred bucks for your ring. And meanwhile, you know, you're, you're probably, your, your uh, wholesale price for that ring is probably 500 bucks because you've got quality and design and, you know, all that good stuff, right? You, so the seller is trying to get 500, the buyer is trying to buy it above scrap value just barely. So it's a very tough business and it's, it was great training for sales. <laughs> Couldn't be better. Could not have a better training for sales. Because when you're selling and people are trying to throw your stuff on the scale and give you scrap value, you really learn how to sell. Interesting. And so you think that experience what was really what equipped you or taught you how to, how to sell better, faster, stronger? It was certainly a huge factor. I mean, I have no regrets about not going straight into technology. And, you know, like many people in technology think, okay, so sales is, we're gonna do an A-B test. And on our homepage, are we gonna make the link blue or red? And we're gonna do this A-B test, A B test, we're gonna figure out, you know, and should we have, should we have a graphic in the right corner or the left corner? We're gonna do another A-B test because everything is sort of e-commerce. But I think that everything is not e-commerce, at least not yet. And while, yeah, I mean, maybe a picture in the right corner is better than the left corner, but at some point, man, a lot of your life is going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat selling and that A-B test ain't going to help right. that. It, it, it's interesting to me to think about a lot of these leaders launching their careers in industries that really are not relevant to the, to the industry that they're in today. And we yeah, get a so skill maybe. Pardon? The skill, the skill, hopefully the skill was relevant. There you I mean, go. Jewelry is not relevant to me today, but certainly the selling skill was. And, and so we get a lot of questions about how, how to find jobs and how to get into the social impact space. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, from, from what I hear from you, it sounds like you're saying, just get started and learn a skill. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a complicated question because I think... Well, my observation on hiring is that most people hire based on background and education, mm -hmm. right? So you want the person who did something similar and has been educated and it's a direct line from computer science degree to programmer, right? So, you know, you understand the leap from education to the real world. 
I would inject a third variable, and the third variable is love. The, you know, do you love what the company does? And I would say that of the three factors, probably love is the most important. So, you know, if you looked at me with Macintosh, I had no technical background. I have a degree in psych because that was the easiest major I could find. I was coming from the jewelry business, nothing to do with technology. So there you go. Don't hire a guy. On the other hand, I tell you, when I saw Macintosh, man, it was a religious experience. I thought that the clouds parted, angels started to sing when I first saw Mac Paint and Mac Write. And so I definitely got the love part. I did not have the education and background part. The background part that was relevant was this jewelry department sale or jewelry manufacturing sales. But, you know, it, it's a kind of a leap to say, okay, so jewelry manufacturing selling prepared you to evangelize a new operating system. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a stretch there, bro. <laughs> so uh, I, what I'm trying to build this case for is sometimes you need to learn to ignore what's irrelevant. And there are two kinds of irrelevancies here. One irrelevancy is the perfect background and the perfect education may be irrelevant if the person doesn't love the product. The other kind of relevancy is that the lack of the perfect education and the lack of the perfect background may be irrelevant if the person loves what you do enough. Mm, I like that. <laughs> See, we don't, I'm telling you, you don't need 30 minutes. I, uh, I, I'm a, listen, I'm a podcaster too, okay? So I know, I know how to cut to the chase because I'm always trying to get guests like that. And... Uh, it is, it's a challenge. On, so on that note, what, what are two of your most memorable episodes and two of the uh, biggest learnings from, from remarkable people? Well, I would say certainly Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall was my very first episode. And let's just say when you start with Jane Goodall, it's not so hard to get guests after that. You know, I mean, like <laughs> you call up anybody and say, well, and they ask you, well, who's been on your podcast before? I said, I don't know, Jane Goodall. Have you heard of her? Do you want to be on the same podcast as her? Um, so that helps. Jane Goodall is remarkable. Well, they're all remarkable, but favorites, Jane Goodall. Uh, maybe Waz, mm -hmm. because Waz, you know, was telling the inside story of Apple. And you know, I, I, I give you a little story from that episode. So if you watch all the Apple movies, you know, Steve Jobs is the marketing guy, and he discovers the homebrew computing club, and he takes Waz down there to show Waz that there are other nerds who want to buy computers, right? Mm -hmm. And Waz tells me, listen, Steve Jobs didn't know what the homebrew computing club was. I was going there every week. I took him to show him <laughs> that people wanted to buy computers. I mean, that's just such a great, you know, that's... That just encapsulates what happens with the movie adaptation of real life, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that. And uh, I, I'm about to release an episode of a woman named Haben Gurma, and she is deaf and blind and went through Harvard Law School. So wrap your mind around that, you know? Hmm. Um, so anyway, I have, I have really, I promise you, Aaron, I have really great, Yes, I know you do. I think, I think my guest list is as good as anybody, including NPR. In fact, I tell people that think of my podcast as NPR without the pledge drive. 
<laughs> all right, that's enough self-promotion. Okay, okay. <laughs> but in hey, all you seriousness, opened the door. It is a great. You opened the door, Aaron. <laughs> I just drove through. Don't blame me. It is a great podcast, so I, I, I'm a huge fan of it. Guy, you are single-handedly, in many respects, responsible for uh, Simbi Foundation existing today in in its current format, as well as Simbi a for-profit. And it's huh. because of your 10, 20, 30, and just uh. what you have. It, it's uh, it, it's, ama- it's amazing how much impact that has had on, on me personally and so many people that I know. And actually, really? the question that I have for you around that is, how did you distill it to that? And then what made you decide that you wanted to share it with the world? Well, first of all, you, you're giving me way too much credit, okay? Because 10, 20, 30 rule of presentations helps people make great presentations. That, that's just a very small aspect of starting a company. So I refuse to believe that that had too much of an effect. Now, I guess you, you got us funded, case, man. If you, yeah. I mean, you could make the case, yes, that if your presentation sucked and you never had money, then you never could start. Then, yeah, I am. Okay. But I, I even I, who flatter myself a lot, I don't flatter myself <laughs> that much. But anyway. So listen, I'm in Silicon Valley. I did a stint as a venture capitalist. I've listened to thousands of pitches and 99.9% of them suck. And so I just got so freaking tired of hearing the same shit over and over again. Then one day I said, yeah, I got to give people some guidance. And so I think the optimal number of slides is roughly 10. There's 10 main topics you need to cover in a pitch. And you never really have an hour, so you need to be able to give it in 30 minutes or 20 minutes. And most people put way too much text on their slides. So the way you force them out of that is you say it's a minimum of 30 points. And so now, do I have exact science that I came upon 10, 20, and 30? No, 10, 20, and 30 is because of the tricolon effect of easy numbers to remember, right? For all I know, it's 11 and 26.5 and 38 point, right? But just like hard to remember. Okay, so what's the rule guy? It was 11, 26 and a half minutes, 42 point font. That just doesn't ring a bell. So 10, 20, 30 is just a very good sort of, you know, easy to remember kind Mm -hmm. of algorithm well i appreciate it and i don't think i'm giving you too much credit and i know there's a lot okay. of people out there who who are on the same page i think okay. i think there's probably what? i think you've probably also helped fund a few companies who you don't want to exist today with your golden principle that has reached the masses but that's the negative <laughs> unintended consequences of, of great things well i'm i'm sure that some books are printed at gutenberg regrets <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'm, I'm so happy you, you jumped there. I, I actually want to know, what is it, you know, a lot of people struggle today to, to get started. We hear a lot of people who yeah. have imposter syndrome, they don't think they're qualified to, to get started. Yeah. And what was it, what was running through your mind when you decided to write your first book? And when you decided that you had acquired enough information to share the Macintosh one? Yeah. Well, my first book was called The Macintosh Way. And at that point that I wrote it, I was in a job that I really was not enjoying. 
So the Macintosh way was kind of a cathartic experience for me to write about how things should be as opposed to how things were. So that was catharsis. And the first book, although many people would disagree with this, the first book is the easiest because you have the most pent up to say. When you get to the 15th book, it's hard to even remember if you're repeating yourself. So uh, the first book is easy. And, and I literally have, Aaron, I have literally told myself roughly 15 times that this is the last book I'll ever write. <laughs> and so for you, it was, you didn't have that imposter syndrome. You weren't concerned about, is your voice valuable? Do people care? Yeah, well, okay, let me address that. So there's a fine line between not having the imposter syndrome and being delusionally arrogant. Mm. You've seen that from roughly 2016 to 2020. <laughs> but I would say that most, if, if you have, if you're listening and you have the imposter syndrome, which is you're doubting that, you know, you're worthy or you can do this or whatever. My first piece of advice for you is that basically everybody has the imposter syndrome. It's just some people are delusional and have forgotten about it. Everybody, I mean, Barack Obama probably, you know, has imposter syndrome sometimes. So everybody, LeBron James probably has imposter syndrome sometimes. It's just, can you push past it? Some people oh, push past too far, let's just say. But I think everybody has self-doubt. If, if you're not self-doubt, you might be a psychopath. So what helped me write my first book was the recommendation of my wife to read a book called If You Want to Write by Brenda Eulin. Now, If You Want to Write obviously is written for writers, but you substitute any kind of creative function for the word write. If you want to make movies, if you want to play music, if you want to sing, if you want to, you name it, mm -hmm. just substitute it in there. This book written by Brenda Euland basically says, if you want to write, write. You don't need to get a PhD in English. You don't need to seek approval from the writing teacher. Just write. And this book, it just removed the shackles from my <laughs> doubt. Mm. And I, honestly, I haven't had imposter syndrome for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you, you read this book before you wrote your first, before you... I, I can't tell you I know the exact sequence. Mm -hmm. Like, did I read the book and then start writing? Or was I reading it as I was writing? Or was it shortly thereafter? But the, I... If somebody has said, if somebody asked me, guys, so what is the thing that most empowered you to be a writer as well as a speaker and probably a podcaster? It is this book, If You Want to Write wow. by Brenda Eulin. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to check that one out. That's fantastic. I, I guarantee I have, I have, I have probably helped sell tens of thousands of copies of that book. I hope someday some people are talking about me the way I talk about her. I think there's probably a, a couple out there. <laughs> well, I know one. I met one today. Yeah. You, so. <laughs> you know, the first one is the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> now, just to go back to the books, do you find, you know, reading is losing these days. And as a medium of, of 
I guess when we think about books, in, in many respects, they're losing to TV, they're losing to social media. And while we still do have a reading habit in some respects, um, yeah. most recently, higher income countries like the US are seeing declining literacy rates among uh, kids, which is pretty devastating. Do you still find that, that for yourself, um, writing a book is, is the best medium to share your ideas and to share your thoughts with the world? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, you, you, you have scientific, like, statistical proof that literacy literacy is declining and reading is declining because yeah in the u.s yeah okay okay it's the first higher income country to do so by the way i would i would make the case that the necessary skill for survival and optimization of life is the acquisition of knowledge now for thousands of years, the acquisition of knowledge was optimized by reading, as opposed to storytelling, because storytelling, you know, you can only tell so many people at a time and all that, right. But the goal is the acquisition of knowledge, the mechanism can change, and it can change from monks scribing copies of the Bible to Gutenberg to websites to podcasts, to blogs, to YouTube, and it may be that I, I, as an author, I cringe when I say this, but it may be that um, we have to focus on empowering people to gain knowledge. And if it's YouTube or it's a podcast or God help us, TikTok, we have to flow with the go. And so I don't, I don't, I can't build a case that decline of literacy is a good thing. Don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but if if let's take a case where like medically um okay, oh this is an interesting question so let's say you're blind and and so you cannot quote read a book does listening to the book count as as literacy that's an interesting question if you can hear a book mm -hmm. if you can hear a book does that mean you're illiterate what does illiterate mean I'm asking you the question. I don't know. I, I think so. So when you're reading while listening, and actually this is my, my PhD in econometrics was in reading while listening. And that's how okay. Cindy grew out of that. But essentially, when you're reading while simultaneously listening, your temporal and occipital lobes are both engaged. So what, what, what that means is you're, ret you're retaining twice as much information because... And so in terms of if you're, you're still making meaning, you are still turning sound into meaning which is technically reading it is but but what if you're not you're saying the simultaneous case i'm saying you're blind you cannot read i guess you yeah. could braille but you know let's just say you are simply well let's not even say that you're blind let's just say that you are listening to a book on tape mm -hmm. is that reading is that reading is that is that literacy or reading is only the act of looking at dots on a page. I think it's I still literacy, but I don't think it's reading. Okay. So then I would make the case that does it matter if, if somebody listens to Jane Goodall's book and gets the message is, is, I don't think it's fair to say, Oh, you're illiterate. <laughs> I mean, true, right. True. So, 
So I get my whole point. This is getting very esoteric, but my whole point is that the goal is the transmission of information. Mm-hmm. And if it's not reading a printed book, if it's not even a Kindle, if it's an audio book, or if it's watching the author on YouTube, because that's your, you know, is I, I could make the case that if you took the body of knowledge of TED Talks, if you watched all of that and never read a book, you'd be doing pretty good. You'd be okay. You would not be an ignoramus. Right. So I guess on that note, you, you've got this incredible, um, what you call the ice harvesting example. And <laughs> yeah. I, I'd love for you to share that with us. And then sure. I, I'd love to actually apply that to what we what we were just talking about with the acquisition of knowledge and just, right. just to use it as a bit of a demo to see how other people can think about this concept. Okay. So the ice, the ice metaphor, ice 1.0, ice harvesting. Frozen lake, frozen pond, frozen river. You go with a horse, a sleigh, and a saw, and you cut blocks of ice. Sell it to your customers. Ice 2.0, ice factory. Now you freeze water centrally. Doesn't have to be winter. Doesn't have to be a cold city. You can deliver ice that you froze centrally through the ice truck. Ice 3.0 is a refrigerator. Now, no more ice factory centralized ice Now you have distributed ice. You have your own ice factory. And, well, one of the interesting things is nobody really went from ice harvester to ice factory to refrigerator company because most organizations define themselves in terms of what they already do as opposed to the benefit they provide. So to switch examples quickly, if you believe that you're in the business of applying chemicals to a plastic film that's exposed to light then you don't embrace digital photography and you die like Kodak. Mm. So you have to remember that the person who's taking pictures is trying to preserve memories. Whether you preserve memories with chemicals on film, chemicals on paper, or a digital sensor should not matter. You're in the preservation of memories business. Just like with ice, you're in the business of convenience and cleanliness. You're not in the business of cutting up rivers or freezing water centrally or even making refrigerators. You're in the business of cleanliness and convenience. And if these companies had mantras instead of mission statements, do you think they would have figured <laughs> that out? I don't, that, I don't know about that. That's... That might be a little bit of a leap, but it certainly would have helped. Because when you speak about it, it sounds so obvious. <laughs> well, that's what makes a good speaker. <laughs> <laughs> so the, when we think about the acquisition of, of education or the acquisition of knowledge, how, how, would, how would you think about how do people who are currently in that business of helping humans and sapiens acquire knowledge Think about this in a way so that they don't lose on the on the next innovation well, curve. Yeah. So I and and believe it or not, for all the pain and suffering and tragedy the pandemic has caused, it has also caused something positive, which is that if you defined education as a concrete building with a chalkboard in the front with a teacher with a classroom full of kids sitting there in chairs. Well, the pandemic blew all that up, right? So education is, for better or for worse, for 18 months was Zoom. And so 
if if you define education as a as a concrete classroom, well, that was education maybe 1.0, but education 2.0 uh, was certainly well. Let's say education 2.0 was personified by the Khan Academy, you know, crowdsourced, et cetera, et cetera. Education 3.0 is characterized by Zoom, and I think that's a very important concept that the physical plant, the, the concrete classroom, uh, is not the key to education. And then 4.0 is exactly what you're saying, plus machine learning? I have no idea what 4.0 is. Not, I can only think in threes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so someone, someone could analyze your career. They could reverse engineer it and say that you were destined to succeed. Someone else could say that you've been exceptionally lucky. And I think an economist would turn around and say that you've managed to optimize or increase your surface area for success or for luck. And okay. I'm, I'm wondering how you think about it. And if someone wants to follow your advice to kind of maximize that surface area for, for luck, how you think about doing that? Well, uh, I would say that I am the result of two parents who made a lot of sacrifices so that I would get an education. That education in and of itself was very high quality. It serves as a proxy for my intelligence. And I mean that sarcastically. So, you know, when people go, I went to Stanford. So when people go to Stanford, most people think, oh, the guy must be smart. I'm not saying it's always true, but I'm saying, you know, that's a proxy, right? Whether we like it or not, let's just admit that. So my parents sacrificed, I got, I went, a, a, an elementary school teacher told my parents to take me out of the public school system and put me into the private college prep system. That led to Stanford. Stanford led to proxy for intelligence, led to a connection to a guy who truly was intelligent and got me into Apple and the rest is history. So now, um, I would say that, you know, what do you call that? You call that right place, right time, right parents. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I also work my ass off. I work very hard and I can outwork more, most people. So it's kind of um, a combination of lucky parent, uh, lucky kid, uh, education, good luck, and work my ass off. All those things lined up. All right. So, so you've worked for for Steve Jobs twice, which is is quite unique. And I I'd love to understand if there are any specific learnings from your time there. That <laughs> well, I worked for Steve Jobs really once. He was not back when completely back when I was at there second time. I worked for Apple twice. Uh, so what I learned from him, well, there are many lessons, but one lesson certainly is. Your current customers cannot tell you how to innovate. They can tell you how to do things slightly better, faster, cheaper. But you know, no Apple II customer told Steve or us to make a Macintosh, let's just say. So that's number one. Number two is that you know, when people believe in what you're doing, they really do become your evangelists. And it's not because of money. It's because they believe and because you're making the world a better place. So that's the second thing I learned. And a third thing I learned is that um, A players hire A players and B players hire C players. And 
even better, A players could hire A plus players. So that's uh, those three lessons would keep you going a long time. When when you think about your trajectory and the, the impact that you've had on this planet and the the work that you've done, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering what what sort of items or what sort of things you see happening next to ensure that you're continuing to positively impact the planet the way that you have in the past? Oh, I'm, I don't really give that much thought. Um, I, I tend to make decisions based on what I like. So, you know, I, I, I don't over-intellectualize things. Now, you could make the case, a la Malcolm Gladwell, that after you've been around long enough, you know, you don't have to intellectualize. You can just blink and make a decision. Mm-hmm. Knock on wood, maybe that's what I, well, I, although I could tell you that, you know, over the course of my life, I've had two really great successes. One is Apple and one is Canva. Now, those two things are about 30 years apart. So what did I do for the other 30 years? Well, I, I flagellated basically <laughs> so um nah, yeah I, <laughs> I i i don't have that's my answer <laughs> all right i yeah no i appreciate it then guy thank you for a lovely call oh fun thank you so much thank you for listening to impact in the 21st century and thank you to rbc for sponsoring this episode We're so grateful for your sponsorship, which helps Simbi Foundation further our mission to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. So how do we do this? We collaborate with the UN and incredible partner communities to build solar power classrooms called Bright Boxes. You can learn more at simbifoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode and think a family member, friend, or coworker would also enjoy it, feel free to share. A personal message goes a long way and will allow us to invite more awesome guests to join for the positive impact conversation. But the conversation doesn't end here, and I'd love for you to join the discussion. So please subscribe, leave a review, comment, and let us know what you thought of today's episode, or if there's anyone else you'd like to see on the podcast. In the meantime, wishing you a wonderful, impactful day ahead, and be sure to join for the next episode.